Greetings, beloveds. It is truly a blessing to be contributing to The Word is Resistance this week, the podcast where we explore what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire and tyranny, violence and repression, the times in which we live today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance to white supremacy? about our role in showing up for liberation. What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled and violent times of pandemics, of racial capitalism? And what wisdom is there in the beauty of resistance? My name is Reverend Margaret Ernst. I use pronouns she and her. You may remember my voice if you have listened to this podcast for a few years now. I am now a pastor at a small town church on Lenape land in what is known as Berks County, Pennsylvania. If you want to know the native land where you live on, go to nativeland.ca. As white settlers, which means people whose ancestors came as part of the colonial project to settle indigenous land and claim it for European powers as mine did, To know the native land we live on is just a start. We have lifetimes worth of stories to learn of the lands where we live. We have lifetimes of repair to atone for past harm and present-day colonialism. We have lifetimes of healing work and of transformation ahead of us. We are not alone in this work, and we can do it. May it be so. At The Word is Resistance, we are in a special series for the Easter season and Pentecost Sunday. We've been looking at the readings from Acts through the lens of what we call mutual interest. For Surge, showing up for racial justice, mutual interest means that racial justice isn't something that we as white folks help people of color with. We as white folks must find our stake, our mutual interest in joining these fights. Whether it's the stakes of your spirit or the betterment of our collective conditions, finding our stake helps us stay in the struggle for the long haul. We stay not to organize our guilt away and then step out when it's convenient. We stay because we find our mutual interest, and that means showing up for black liberation, for indigenous people, and for racial justice because we know, as Anne Braden said, that our lives depend on it, and indeed they do. We are asking ourselves what the stories in Acts can teach us about this kind of mutual interest. There is a lot to learn here about the dynamics of mutual interests, even though those times were different in the ancient Greco-Roman world in which Paul lived and the Jesus movement was growing. There were different identities at play, but What was so compelling, we are asking, about the Jesus movement that it attracted Gentiles? What was their mutual interest in joining a Jewish resistant movement led by poor people who Rome considered disposable and a threat? What was at stake? What can this help us to understand as white Christians today about our mutual interest in dismantling white supremacy and joining in efforts for black liberation 
and collective liberation. If you've missed the rest of this series, I encourage you to go back to listen and ask yourself, what is this stirring for you? What's your stake in fighting white supremacy with God's help, with your whole heart, your whole mind, and all of your being? This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe we have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting racism, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy wherever we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We do this work remembering that we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, recorded in December 2014. That recording was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. Dear ones, how are you right now? Whenever I begin my therapy sessions, my therapist always asks me to close my eyes and to be still and to find what wants to come to the surface. Maybe you can do that right now. If you're driving, you can do it later. But get still to whatever degree you are comfortable doing so. What's at the surface? Is there grief? Fear? Is there numbness? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling exhausted, hopeless, or hopeful? In just two weeks, we have witnessed 10 black grocery shoppers gunned down by an 18-year-old white supremacist in Buffalo. At a church in Irving, California, a shooter violently entered, taking the life of a worshiper in an attack rooted in the long history of China and Taiwan relations. In Palestine, Pallbearers and mourners who were carrying the body of world-renowned journalist Shireen Abu Akleh were beaten down by Israeli police as they carried her coffin. Shireen was covering army raids in the village of Jenin in the time in which she was shot by the Israeli military, in the time of the memory of the Nakba. All of this pain and loss and horror takes place in the wake of passing one million COVID deaths in the United States, in the wake of ongoing war in Ukraine, and the earth-shattering leak from the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court is prepared to overturn Roe versus Wade. Please take a moment to care for yourself.
We care for ourselves because without doing so, we cannot respond from a grounded place, rooted in our deepest values and vision. I hope that you have been checking in with other people in your life this week, especially those who are most impacted directly by the violence that has occurred. I pray you have found meaningful ways to connect, to build community, and to be in solidarity. I think of Gwendolyn Brooks's quote, We are each other's harvests. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. These are times when it can be hard to believe in what's possible for humanity. It can be hard to believe in our basic goodness. We ask ourselves, where is God? I am a church pastor and a person who has committed my whole life to faith, and yet I don't always know the answer to that question. Where is God? And yet we still come together to pray, to come to the scriptures, and to ask in faith, what is our role in creating a better world, the world we long to live in, where no one has to fear being shot at a grocery store for the color of their skin or shot in their place of worship, we gather to ask, how do we create a world where everyone is well, where no one needs to die of an illness that could have been prevented or has to fear not having enough sick days to stay home. With all of our questions, we still come together to build up a new world. Builders must be strong. We get our strength from a well of faith that sometimes we may not even see the source of when God eludes us on days like this, but we are here. This week's text from Acts is about people gathered for worship and community in similar times. It is about safe places for such gatherings and about the radical hospitality we can extend according to the structures and resources that we have access to. It's about a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple cloth. Let's read it together from Acts 16.9 through 16.15. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. There was a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God. Lydia was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. 
When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Let's orient ourselves. Where are we? Who shows up in this text and what happens? Let's start with the where. We are in Philippi, a major city in Macedonia, a Roman colony in what is now Greece. Macedonia was part of the heart of the ancient Greek world, or in that time, under Roman control. Philippi was a wealthy place. Its source of wealth came from mines in the area. So it was, of course, a strategic place to be controlled by the Romans. Who is there? The narrator in Acts is the same author of the book of Luke, who identifies as Luke, a traveling companion of Paul. You can hear more about Luke and the complexities that underlie his narrative, especially as it relates to Jews and anti-Semitism in the other episodes in this series. I also recommend reading Acts from the Jewish Annotated New Testament because it has commentary from Jewish scholars on the Jewish context of the period and the nuances of relations between Jewish and Gentile Jesus followers in the text and the conflicts within and between Jews about those relations. Paul is here in the story, too, and likely Silas, though he is not mentioned. And then we have Lydia. Lydia is described as a worshiper of God, which meant a Gentile involved in a Jewish community or interested in Judaism. This was a common phenomenon throughout the Greco-Roman world. One thing it shows us is that the lines between Jews and Gentiles were not always quite as binary as they seemed. There had been Gentiles, you see, long before the Jesus movement, who for one reason or another were drawn to Jewish practice, thought, and community. There was even a reserved place in the temple for such people, in fact, and often in many synagogues. We know that most people, like Lydia, who were also called God-fearers, were women. They came from all social classes and had an allegiance to Judaism. But they still had privileges as Gentiles within the empire. For instance, they did not have to pay the so-called Jewish tax. What we know about Lydia is that she was wealthy enough to have her own home, and that she sold purple cloth. Purple cloth was an important source of industry in the place where she came from. She was far from her own community of origin, just like Paul, Luke, and Silas. Though she was living in Philippi, the text tells us that she was from Thyatira, which was from a few hundred miles away in Asia Minor. So what happens here? Paul and his companions are teaching at a place of prayer in Philippi, possibly a synagogue. There are women gathered listening. And Lydia, who is among them, is compelled 
by what Paul has to say. She is drawn in. As a result of what she hears, she and her whole household is baptized, and then she invites Paul and his companions to stay with her at her home. What do you notice about this story? What questions do you have? One question I have is what drew Lydia, a rich businesswoman and property owner and a Gentile, to be drawn to Judaism to begin with? What stake did she see for herself in aligning herself with the Jewish people in the context of the Roman Empire, where being Jewish meant less privilege? We may never know the answers to those questions. We can only speculate. Maybe Lydia knew that her true security didn't come from the Roman Empire or from her wealth, but from a community rooted in the memory of a God of liberation. Maybe she had Jewish friends and she knew that her freedom was wrapped up in theirs. I wonder too what stake Lydia saw for herself in what she hears from Paul's teachings about Jesus. What did she believe would be possible for her in joining this movement, following this man from Nazareth? What liberation, what freedom, what salvation did she see in Jesus? and the story of a risen Christ. And why? Why did she not just ask to be baptized, but to ask Paul and his companions to stay with her in her home? I wonder if this hospitality would have brought any risk upon her. If not physical risk, then controversy or questions or a social cost of some kind. I wonder what she would have had to do to ensure her home could be a place of safety and care for these travelers. I wonder, too, what this offer of hospitality might have felt like to Paul and to his companions. Most of them were Jews staying at a Gentile home, even if Lydia was a God-fearer involved with the Jewish community. There was certainly some serious class difference involved. Lydia had a whole other level of privilege in the Roman Empire than the others did, both ethnically and economically. I wonder if, upon preparing her home for Paul and the others, Lydia asked herself what would help them to feel they could be their full selves. What would it take for working Jewish folks to feel safe and comfortable in the home of a rich, Gentile woman thousands of miles from their home. When we invite people into our homes or into our lives, sometimes we want people to be like us. We want people to fit in with the furniture, so to speak. We don't ask what will make them feel that they are safe, that they belong, that they can be their full selves, living out their truest purpose. The real talk, hospitality always changes the house. Someone may need something that you don't have, and you have to find out how to get it. Or your guests may bring something that you didn't know that you needed. And real talk, hospitality should not just change the house, but change the host.
There is a difference, I believe, between a basic sense of hospitality, meaning being polite to guests, and radical hospitality. Radical hospitality is the kind we often see Jesus modeling. A hospitality that heals, that protects, that covers. A hospitality that makes space and makes room. A hospitality where the host is willing to be changed as a result. There is mutual transformation involved with radical hospitality, and I believe there is mutual interest. In my experience, this kind of hospitality has often been offered to me by working-class people and people with less privilege than I have. What about you? Have you ever opened your home space or your life to someone or to a whole community who transforms it for the better? Has radical hospitality ever been offered to you? Now, maybe there is inconvenience or struggle involved as well. Hospitality, receiving it or offering it, is not always easy. But think of a time when through hospitality something changed for the benefit of all. A time when God worked through this opening for mutual healing and support. I can think of a few occasions in my life like that. They are special to me. I try to keep my eyes open to ways that I am called to embody radical hospitality in my life and to receive it. As a church pastor, I think about these questions with my church, too. Like many churches nowadays, unlike in Paul's and Lydia's time, our church has a building instead of meeting in people's homes. We have two buildings, in fact. We have a sanctuary space built in the 1880s and a Christian education building built in the 1990s, where I am now. For many churches wrestling with their identity and future, there was always the question of the role of our buildings in who we are. We know that the church is not just the building. Yet we have our buildings, and whether we love them or we hate them, they require maintenance and stewardship. We ask ourselves how to make our buildings as accessible and welcoming as possible to our community, those who worship with us, and those outside of it. At a recent training I was at for new pastors in my conference in the United Church of Christ, the perennial question of buildings arose. There was consensus that the, quote, church of the future, so to speak, is outside the building, people said, pointing to out there, past the walls of the physical church. And yet, there was also conversation about how our buildings can be assets to the community in which we serve. That resonated with me deeply. I remembered how, as an activist and organizer in Nashville, I was always looking for meeting space for our surge gatherings. I remember how, when surge would use spaces from churches, those churches were often fuller at those meetings than they were on Sunday mornings. If we want to talk about mutual interests, I would often tell pastors, look, you want people coming to church? Do the work of liberation. For white Christians with access to buildings and resources, I think this text poses an invitation for us to think about how our buildings can be assets not just to our community in general, but for racial justice in our communities in particular. What relationships might we need to build such that those connections can grow and are intentional? 
What kind of safe harbors can we offer for organizing in our communities, even if that organizing is new and just starting out? Come and stay with me, Lydia says. The Greek here is translated as stay, and that word is menete. It is also translated as abide. There is a sense of lingering. This is not a quick stop. Emily Towns, the womanist theologian, who I had the privilege to study under while she was dean at Vanderbilt Divinity School, often says, let us tarry there, when she wants to dive deeper in a classroom conversation. I think we benefit from tarrying with each other, from staying with each other, abiding for a while. The kinds of encounters and transformations that you never expect often happen when we let people stay in our space or when we stay in others. Come, stay with me for a while. Hospitality begs the question of creating safety, refuge. This is on our mind at Surge Faith a lot through our campaign for community safety for all, in which we're asking white faith communities to divest from policing. In Buffalo this week, many politicians and members of the public have called for more investment in policing in response to the horrific white supremacist shooting. Buffalo-based organizers, however, like Black Love Resists in the Rust, have been organizing emergency food and mental health support and holding up a different vision, a vision of abolition and safety in a world without police. In all of our responses, we must ask ourselves how we get to the reality where Black people will never get shot by the police or by a white supremacist. This is just baseline safety. I want more than baseline safety for my friends and beloveds who are black. I want a world where people don't just feel safe, but can thrive, flourish, be vulnerable, be powerful, be loved, and be treated as divine in every place and space in which they dwell. My friend and the brilliant preacher and leader, Reverend Naomi Washington Leaphart, posted this lament on Facebook this week. She said, so, do black people have to start wearing bulletproof clothing? Let us live into a world where she will never have to ask that question, where no one has to ask that question. As we close today, I want to share with you a closing blessing of a song written by Alison Byer. She wrote it in response to a call for white artists from Surge to create art about white people's stake in racial justice. For Alison, mutual interest came down to a few simple words. When you're healed, I'm healed. 
When you're whole, I'm whole. When you're safe, I'm safe. When you're free, I'm free. It's a beautiful song. We'll include the song so you can hear it and teach it to the communities that you build and resist with. Friends, we are not just spiritual beings. We are bodies that need a place to be. Our communities need places to sleep and to be fed, whether it is in the case of traveling for organizing like Paul, or simply in day-to-day life. Hospitality is a part of the work of liberation. Allison's song goes on like this. When you breathe, I can breathe. When you win, I win. When you're fed, I'm fed. To talk about mutual interests, I could tell you statistics about how people who live in societies without racist violence and animosity are shown in studies to be much happier people. I could tell you data points about how the structures of white supremacy and racial capitalism is killing all of us, even white people, with how public disinvestment in the common good happens through racist ideology. But now, just feel this song in your bones instead. Feel what you feel. We may have the analysis. But on some level, this is simply about what we know on the deepest levels as humans. We are meant for each other. We may know it through our experiences. We may know it through God. We may know it through Jesus. But you know it, and so do I. We are meant to love and to be loved across every human construct that keeps us apart, every ideology which seeks to exploit human difference rather than to celebrate it. We are meant for each other because that's simply how God wants us to be. We are meant to tarry with each other, to abide, to find ourselves in each other, whether we are the hosted or the host. When you're safe, I'm safe. When you're free, I'm free. For our action this week, please watch the recording on Facebook Live of Serge's call on Tuesday entitled Mourn and Organize, a call for white people in response to Buffalo. In that recording, you can listen to organizers in Buffalo and hear updates and action steps in the midst of this horrific attack. Please make a gift to Black Love Resists in the Rust. Black Love Resists in the Rust is a local group organizing on the ground in Buffalo, their community, fighting white supremacy and anti-black racism. Right now, they are raising funds in this very moment for mental health support, for long-term support for the community impacted by the shooting at Tops, and for food, because that was the only supermarket in what was otherwise a food desert. You can learn more about Surge and our Surge Face campaign community safety for all at showingupforracialjustice.org. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a listener survey on our website to let us know what you like about the podcast, what you'd like to see more of, and to give us more feedback. Our transcripts are available as well as the resources for action that I mentioned on our website. 
You can find us on SoundCloud or any podcast app that you like the most. Thanks to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens, this week. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for joining us. Keep organizing. Keep keeping each other safe. Amen. When you're healed, I'm healed. When you're whole, I'm whole. When you're safe, I'm safe. When you're free, I'm free. When you can breathe, I can breathe. When you win, I win. You feel respect, I feel respect. We have everything to gain. When you're healed, I'm healed. When you're whole, I'm whole. When you're safe, I'm safe. When you're free, I'm free. When you can breathe, I can breathe. When you win, I win. When you're home, I'm home.